Uh, here we go, Skips. Three, right. two, two, one. one. Let's <laughs> go! Yeah! Oh, we're back. Oh. We're back. We <laughs> are back again, and this time with Dr. Scott Tinker. Skippo, you're out in California. I'm sitting in Arizona. What is happening? What's the latest? What's the greatest in your life right now? Give me well, Scale me first of all. One to ten. Ten being this the best time of your life. Scale me real quick. At the moment, I'm I'm up there. I'm up at like a 9.5, 10. Because, I mean, for me, Dr. Tinker is, I mean, I've read a large amount of the, his publications. For my thesis itself, I know a lot of the, the work as far as on the Northwest Shelf and, you know, the quads. I mean, your, your name, it was basically in every single paper that I, I read for my thesis, which was <laughs> awesome. Uh, but I mean, California, it's shutting down again. So that's a, that's a fun little thing that's happening. So apparently either today or tomorrow, we're, we're going back into like more or less full lockdown again. Yeah. No, I think outbreak. that's happening here too. Yeah. It's, yeah. uh, cases are going up. It is what it is. We will fight this. We will get through it. It's, uh, it's an opportunity to, get past the politics, get back to just operating and, and getting our businesses moved forward, getting life moved forward. We, we just got to unite. Let's shut this thing down again. Let's, let's just get through this time. So mm -hmm. that's, that's good. Uh, Skips, you got anything before I read Dr. Tinker's bio? I don't think so. Let's hop right into it. All right, man. I just want to say one thing also, actually, before you do say this, I, Dr. Tinker, I, I looked at your CV beforehand and I aspire for, you know, 20 years down the road for my CV to be half as good as yours. <laughs> well, you know, we academics put everything we've ever thought or even haven't thought in a CV. So don't, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's just paper. I, I was going to say mine is about five pages and that's with like, you know, weird formatting to, you know, make it a little bit longer. But I mean... Yeah, 76 pages, and it's just, oh, my gosh, it's awesome. It's You're getting awesome. there. Yes, you're getting I'm there. getting there. One day. One day. <laughs> Don't rush it. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride, for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I am not going to read 76 pages of a CV, <laughs> but I will uh, put out uh, what is the bio for Dr. Scott Tinker as Director of Bureau of Economic Geology, ja Jackson School of Geoscience, uh, professor, Department of Geologic Sciences, and uh, Edwin Alday, Centennial Chair in Subsurface Geology. Scott Tinker works to bring industry, government, academia, and non-governmental organizations together to address major social challenges in energy and uh, the environment and the economy. Dr. Tinker is director of the 250-person Bureau of Economic Geology, the state, geologi uh, state geologist of Texas, and professor holding the Edwin Alday Endowed Chair in the Jackson School of Geoscience at the University of Texas, Austin. With director Harry Lynch, Tinker co-produced and is featured in the award-winning energy documentary film Switch. We talk about it on this show. It Ooh. is absolutely inspirational, which has been screened in over 40, uh, 50 countries to more than 15 million viewers and is used on thousands of K-12 and college campuses. Dr. Tinker formed the nonprofit Switch Energy Alliance in 2016 and has compiled two new firms, Switch On Films, Switch On, a feature-length documentary 
many are addressing global energy poverty and energy uh, and energy makes our world a five minute Hollywood quality film made in the global uh, made for global museums and giant screens. He is the voice of Earth Date, a two minute weekly program that focuses on remarkable stories of Earth. Earth Date is produced by Bureau of Economic Geology and is featured on over 400 NPR and public radio stations in all 50 states. Dr. Tinker has served as president of several associations, including the American Geoscience Institution uh, Institute, a, uh, the Association of American State Geologists, the American Association of Petroleum Geologists, and Gulf Coast Association of Geological Societies, AAPG Howdy Medalist, uh, GCA. G.S. Boyd, uh, medalist and Geological Society of America fellow. In the visit, in this visit to some 65 countries, he has given over 850 keynote and invited lectures. Dr. Tinker, I'm sorry that I butchered that a little bit, but I, I was nervous because of how excited I am from the show we just created. And I thank you so much for you taking the time to enlighten us and for, for the, the, the motivation I personally got from, from this show. Uh, it's great to be here. and Thank you guys for what you're doing. It, it matters. Communication matters and honest communication matters. Open. So I'm happy to be part of it. Let me know if I can engage in the future. Wow. Well, for me, Skips and, and Dr. Tanker, what dropped out for me, there's so so much and, and just general, the motivation to keep going. But it's really the, the you know, the, the, the reason why we do what we do at PBE and why we keep putting out these shows. We, we have no idea what's going to drop out in any of this. We're, we're motivated by the geology, by the progression of geoscience, and how we have all these new ideas that we can apply to the old problems and potentially find new solutions. We do that daily, and that's motivation and opportunity. But it's not until you kind of put it in a, a bigger perspective. And that's what happened today is the bigger mm -hmm. perspective that we are the generation that has that motivation. And we see the value that personally I'm taking every day with my time and attention on, on that specifically, the geology and how I can apply this and make maybe new discoveries for an operator or how I can help in as a geoscientist. But to further that, there, I think right now there's a universal truth of our generation, Skippo, that's understanding the value of Dr. Tinker, the value of his experience and what he's doing as a professional and as a person. And it's, in, it's on us to say, oh my gosh, that is so real. That is something that needs to be done. That's something the world does need. And, and now we have the ability to be efficient with technology and to do what we do with the podcasting. And we're integrating. We're yeah. doing it live. This is a very real thing. And with real things becomes real challenges. And that's your story, Dr. Tinker. The challenges that continuously hit and you continuously met, you know, rolled over and climbed over and fought through and and allowing us and your children to 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 continue bringing value that's where it's at for us at pbe it's it's value in what we're doing and i think we're providing that well i definitely agree you know and it is and it's risky you know, it's 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 emotionally risky and 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 it's socially risky to get out there but i think the more that's done the more people feel comfortable with these balanced conversations and geologists are used to taking risks. I've climbed cliffs and jumped out of airplanes and, you know, <laughs> did a flown an airplane by myself when I wasn't ready and did a lot of crazy <laughs> things in my life, but we're risk takers. Explorationists are risk takers. And, and 
So get out there, take that, take that social risk and really engage your peers. And I'll, boy, I'll be proud of you when you do it. Mm-hmm. Right on. And I mean, just being able, and for me, my, my biggest takeaway from this podcast is, is the integration more or less of all of these different concepts from, because for us as petroleum geologists, right? We don't really think of, we find the oil, we get it in the pipe, and then we move on to the next prospect, right? We move on to that next well, but really thinking about how that energy and how that oil that we produce is being utilized and not only just the oil, right? How energy itself is being utilized throughout the planet and the challenges of getting that energy to everyone, right? To, you know, have a better life, have better education, just, you know, improve living conditions. And it's possible, but it's only possible through conversations like this and bringing these tough, hard to think of issues to the surface, right? Because if it's out of sight, it's out of mind, but those problems are there, right? And we have the ability to fix those problems. It's just talking about it at this point. Okay, so we are officially beginning the conception part of this show and skips. It is with Dr. Tinker as, sir, we are just absolute fans of of what the BEEG is, the Bureau of Economic Geology out of the University of Austin. Your accomplishments as, as professionals, as we would read the publications to better understand the Permian Basin, to give us a chance to really provide value to our company as it was our responsibility to put those drill holes in the right spots, the perfs in the best places to make the most amount of money possible. And sir, it has been an honor to uh, to share this time and, and to do this podcast with you, I can't wait to uh, to get going on this and let's do it. How did it begin? Where did the love of rocks begin? How did this happen for Mr. Do- uh, Dr. Scott Tinker? <laughs> well, well, if you're reading my stuff, uh, you guys need to get out more. <laughs> I found way too much water in my career. That's why I'm a professor. <laughs> Poisoning young minds. Oh, anyway, my dad's a geologist. He worked for Shell for 39 years. And so I went off to college to become anything except a geologist, as all good young men do, and went to Trinity. And there was a professor there at the time. He's passed now named Ed Roy. Ed was a great AAPG guy and professor. And in 1978, you could drink beer legally as a high school kid. And Texas and even drive, you know, who knows? It was crazy times, but we were having a beer as a orientation week under the tower of Trinity and Ed grabbed me and said, take intro geology. I said, no, my dad's a geologist. I don't want to do that. No, I'll come take it. You know, then you can get science out of the way. Well, he knew. (laughs) And that was it. We went on field trips and we, you know, it was awesome. And I was hooked from the beginning. So that's kind of where it really started for me. I never stopped. I took some business, I did a degree in business and all that kind of crud, but uh, it was really right there and, and getting out in the field. I loved that. I loved it for many, many years, decades, actually, of all that good field work. And that's what pulled me in. <clears throat> and how did, so you, you're going through undergraduate, obviously, and then you get into a master's degree. You really are going full board. I'm going the science route. I'm going geology. How does that transition or how does the development for you into the BEG and, and that whole part of the story, how did that happen? What are those- yeah, well, there's kind of a 20-year gap there. But, yeah, I left undergrad and worked for an independent in Houston named Bob Snyder. And Bob 
you know, he's a powers medalist, he's big time guy. And I spent, went there for the summer and decided to stay and work for another year for him. And he said, I'll keep you for a year, but I'm going to fire you at the end of the year and you're going to get your master's. <laughs> and true to his word, he fired me at the end of the year. And I don't think it was for a master's. <laughs> I think he just said, wow, God, <laughs> this guy needs some more training. And so that's when I went to University of Michigan under James Lee Wilson. And Jim wrote the book on carbonates at the time, Carbonate Faces with Geologic History. And wonderful guy. And I did my master's uh, work down in, in Mexico. I've been working East Texas Basin with Bob and the onshore Texas. So I was able to get into the outcrops, uh, the Cretaceous equivalent outcrops in northern Mexico in the field. Pretty wild country. I mean, we were we were camping for weeks at a time and staying in my Jeep and going into little Tres Ordas hotels, which I, you know, I won't tell you what a three hour hotel is, but for us, it was just for a shower. <laughs> but there was a curtain behind the Jeep and I figured out what that meant later. <laughs> but anyway, so a lot of great field work there and, and, and had fun and then went to work again, worked for, had lots of offers in Houston and New Orleans, but I Spent time as a kid in Denver because dad had assignments in Shell. Loved Colorado. So we took a job with a little company called Champlin Petroleum, which later became Union Pacific, and then that became Anadarko, and now that's Oxy. Whoa. But worked there for a few years before the merger and worked mostly Rocky Mountain Basins at the time, continuing to do a little bit in the field. And then that merged into Fort Worth. And I left and joined the Marathon Research Lab there in Littleton in 1988. And I was working on an MBA in the night when I was at Champlin, just keeping my hand in. And we didn't have kids yet. I was married, but no kids. Went to Marathon and got into carbonates when Neil Hurley was there. And great group. Lots of rocks, looking at cores, working in Big Yates Field in West Texas and others. Uh, Denise Cox days as well? Denise Marook was, <laughs> she ah, was there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but she wasn't there at the lab. She had left to go to Midland by then. So okay. I, uh, yeah, so I was with others. Uh, Charlie Karens kind of came and went quickly, but terrific group of people and got to do a lot of neat things. But that led into working with a petrophysicist and an engineer and a, and a geophysicist and me on a team. And we started building some of the first 3D models of reservoirs on the early pre-GUI <laughs> uh, days of strata model, it was called. So we were writing code and I was learning. They were writing code. I was being a geologist. But for, you know, putting all this together in these cool 3D models of reservoirs and trying to understand their architecture and bringing stratigraphy into computer modeling, it was absolute blast. Looking at rocks and, and, and doing stuff, trying to understand how fields produced. And along the way, I said, you know, I better go back and do a PhD. It, so I didn't quit. I did it on the side at CU Boulder with, with David Bunn. And Paul Weimer was on my committee, uh, well-known names. Neil Hurley was on my committee, Charlie Karens. It was a hard committee, actually. I was going to say. <laughs> these, these are tough, tough guys. And, and so that I wanted to get back out in the field and was working a lot of Permian stuff in West Texas in the subsurface. And so went out to the quads and did a big, you know, 3D architecture of McKittrick Canyon from, from the shelf all the way across the margin and into the basin. Pretty rough. A few years of going down for six, seven, eight weeks at a time camping and dropping off the edge and 
measuring section and plotting it on photos and trying to tie all that together. And other people have actually done it for real since then, you know, but <laughs> my story was fun and wasn't bad. We had heli photos we were flying off of and wow. published that in JSR with a big color fold out and a lot of cool things. And, and so tying the surface and the subsurface back and forth across the Permian until about 1999. And you guys may or may not remember that was a, 86 was a hell of a year in the industry big price drops in the early eighties and then 99, another big one. And so the spray paint was on the bathroom wall. The labs were going to start closing and the Bureau of Economic Geology was advertising for a director. Charlie called me up and was asking for names. And I kind of said, how about me? I was 40. <laughs> he goes, you, are you kidding me? You know, we need somebody real. And, and uh, <laughs> luckily they didn't have anybody qualified who applied. And I went down and they got stuck with me. So, we moved from Denver to Texas to Austin, came back to Texas, been here 21 years now at the Bureau. So that's kind of the, the abbreviated, and along the way, I actually worked Western Canada with David Eby and Kent Kirkby, looking at a lot of rocks up there, all Devonian stuff. Mm -hmm. So really the systems I've studied deeply were are Devonian, the Permian, the Cretaceous for the most part, um, okay. always looking at rocks in core and in outcrop cuttings and then trying to tie that back in and we had a lot of really a lot of fun through those years and I, I definitely miss him wow. and my son is a geologist my oldest son he's 30 <laughs> but he went and did his master's at UT he works for Hillcore still in Houston and his wife's with Exxon Mobil so that, we yeah. have multi-generations of this thing of going geos. on yeah <laughs> hey. was there was there a push on his end or was he just falling right into it kind of kind of similar to you you know, it was just like with my father. He went to Trinity to be anything except a geologist and studied <laughs> math. And then he took a gap year his junior year and he met some geologists and went back and signed up for a major and he cranked through it in two years and he loved it. Did his master's at UT and he was working summer internships at various places with Bud Brigham and mm -hmm. uh, Hyrate Meng up in Colorado, et cetera. So he loved it and has stayed in it. Second son is actually did his bachelor's in engineering and physics and math, and then went and did his master's in petroleum engineering at UT. That's a bloody hard program. I didn't want to become a petroleum engineer, so he worked for Switch for a while, and then he's now started his own company called Agnostic Data Group (ADG), and is doing a bunch of big-time data coding, trying to bring together the two big data architectures that sit under all of the things we do. We're all used to kind of. Uh, the spreadsheet format, you know, <laughs> of data, and he's doing something called graph. And the graph database is a very different architecture, lots of new power that SQL and other things don't have. So he's written a lot of code over the years to bring those together seamlessly. Mm -hmm. and, and wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Just finding, finding new ways to leverage all that data. Cause I mean, that's the struggle we have. We have the data. Yeah. It's just, what's the best way to evaluate yeah. it and utilize it. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 you know, geoscientists have been doing artificial intelligence and data analytics and big data for a long time. We didn't always call it that, mm -hmm. but really trying to put these together now in ways that allow you to synthesize different um, scales of data, time series of data, things that you might not have brought in because it was just a pain in the ass and you, and you didn't <laughs> have time. But now you can bring all that together and not yet. I mean, there's still a lot of work to do, but I highly suggest to people that 
get some quantified beneath you. Our third son is in grad school now at CU Boulder doing data analytics. Jeez. And then our youngest, our daughter, our only girl, she's so much smarter than the three boys combined. It's scary. But she's doing, she's in data, cognitive sciences and analytics at University of Michigan. So all of them have kind of gone that way. It's pretty neat to see because I work on counting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know if we could work this out, but I'd like to also do a podcast with them, starting with the oldest and the youngest. <laughs> and, uh, I think that would be fascinating. Uh, for, you for- should bring them all on together and you would be <laughs> laughing until you, you couldn't laugh anymore. <laughs> I promise you, it'd, it'd be fun. They range from 20 to 30 and they've all, they've all done pretty well. They're smart like their mom. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. Well oh, done, sir. well done. That uh, that we it, we got oh we got through a lot, and I was thinking that uh, you know trying to understand and really think of your perspective and put my, my myself in your shoes while you were modeling the subsurface before your PhD, before you went out and actually saw this in the physical world and made those connections on how things are changing laterally in the the outcrops you you were seeing something that inspired you to do that phd in the modeling mm-hmm. okay yeah yeah well i i just wanted to get back in the field so i was looking for something to inspire me because <laughs> the field is fun but we were building these models and and they were really not constrained by good geologic architecture right what were what were the major stratigraphic packages, if you will, and mostly time stratigraphic packages that controlled the way fluids and gases move in the subsurface. How were that, how was that, how was that architecture binding it and did it matter? So that drove me back to the outcrops to look at these big walls and their architecture and try to understand those. So that when you go back and do correlation, Rather than just correlating wiggles on a log, you have a stratigraphic model in mind for the depositional system that you're working in. Mm-hmm. And that's so fundamental to it. You know, if you picture, I'm going to put up a, a, an image for those viewers who want to uh, take a look. Let's see if I can find a, a picture of my field area for my PhD. Here it is. So... You know, look behind me and you can see this big wall, about 1,500 vertical feet. Um, you can see the architecture running across here, these little thin beds, and they dive off to the right in the field of view, which isn't that much. Now, there's some other thin beds that come in behind my head back here that are the same lithology. Mm-hmm. And if I drop a wireline log down here, that wireline log is going to get a kick here where the plants are there and there and there and here and here and here. And in a vertical sense, I'm going to correlate those together. But they're not. These are way down here. (laughs) Those have gone up into the air. Okay, (laughs) And that's what shingling clinoforms do. So Mm -hmm. it forces us sometimes when we're just doing wire log correlations to correlate things that look the same that aren't actually architecturally connected. And that matters. So another question, just to kind of go off of that. You were saying you were looking for a way to find where oil and gas was moving within the subsurface. Did you also find correlations within, is uh, in regards to dolomization within those those clinoforms and those packages? Like, hey, yeah. these clinoforms are more likely to be dolomatized opposed to the clinoforms, you know, 
further down yeah. the slope. He okay. did some, man. I mean, the, the diagenesis that was superimposed on those sediments that became lithified and then changed through time as fluids move through that system of different chemistries. You can see not so much a certain type of clinoform, but the position of certain facies within that architecture. So mm -hmm. certain parts of these would get dolomitized because fluids would move through that facies more readily than mm -hmm. this part of that ramp or this part of that margin. Yeah. And you would see dolomization happen, or you might see cementation of different kinds. Now, of course, part of parogenesis is what's happening as the rocks break. So the whole fracture story, which mm -hmm. I completely ignored in my PhD because I was <laughs> stupid and didn't have enough time, but it came in later. <laughs> you know, what? what's moving the fluids? Sometimes it's not stratigraphy. It's the mm -hmm. whole secondary structural geology story. Yeah. Of right. joints and, and faults that are moving fluids and then into the strata so yeah. that's all coming together now and it creates then certain porosity systems and permeability systems mm -hmm. that control the movement yeah and that's what we're trying to understand really is how fluids awesome. will move in the subsurface mm -hmm. can we make models of that so that you know, I haven't talked about this for so many years. <laughs> this is so great. <laughs> I love you guys. I'm yeah. <laughs> actually talking about something that I truly had a passion for. And I, I was going to say, I'm a structure guy at heart. So understand. So the, you know, the actual depositional model of these clinoforms is, I, I have a general understanding, but understanding how the rock is breaking and how the fluid that moves through those various fracture networks and how that affects the rock is what I love. Yep. Yep. And you see, you know, it creates and destroys porosity along the way. Mm -hmm. There's cementation and there's dissolution. And, and those are going on throughout time. So it really can change the architecture. So our job at the reservoir scale was really to try to make these three-dimensional models of the rock fluid system. And then we would feed those into simulators, really ancient ones. And they would try to forecast how the fluids would behave. And they were, they were pretty early simulators. At times I'd go in and talk to the engineer and he'd crank porosity up to about 140%. And I'm saying, that's interesting. There's, there's actually more holes than exist in the world if it was all a hole in your model. Yeah, but I got a history match. And, okay, you know, can you forecast? Not past tomorrow, but it's okay. So, you know, we were all learning as we went and things have gotten more sophisticated. But if you don't understand that thing behind me, you're still probably not going to do the greatest job of understanding your reservoir, including exploration. I mean, these are big scale things. So sometimes these little thin sands up here, they're silty sands produced. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes the, the carbonates, the cliffs produce in arid systems, uh, modern arid environments, the carbonates of the cliffs and the sands are recessive. And so you can you can see that here. And of course, this is the massive reef, the, the Permian reef system, the Capitan. Oh, and that got a little hairy at times, climbing down here and <laughs> tiptoeing off of about a four or five, six hundred foot wall. Shame. Uh, if your if your life isn't in danger, is it is it really field work though? <laughs> <laughs> if you're yeah. not worried about a rattlesnake or maybe falling yeah. off this edge. <laughs> It's not field work till there's a rattlesnake and then a lightning storm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they came in. We had an ice storm out here one morning in October. Yeah. Oh my God. 
Yeah, the wind was howling so bad one time that it, literally I thought it was just going to blow us up the cliff. <laughs> but a lot of fun. That's kind of my background in, in the rocks. And yeah, maybe someday we'll get back to them next second half of my career. <laughs> uh, we will we will i think uh one thing that i'm certainly interested in kind of learning more of the research institute and kind of this next chapter in my life leaving the permian and getting kind of a bigger geologic concept going is hydrothermal uh geology and hydrothermal alteration and going back with uh, a little bit more resolution on that in my vision looking at these outcrops and what could be coming from the deep and influencing this system and the fluids you talked about I'm certainly excited to just reevaluate everything possible and apply just you know as much geology and new concepts as as we can so Man, that was that was fun. I had a good time listening to that, and uh, and it, it led to and it's ultimately got us into getting getting closer to the drill down segment, which is kind of what you're doing with the BEG now. But you know, when you show up to the BEG, you got the director position. What an incredible accomplishment! I hope you celebrated that whole year. Uh, accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> That's huge. And so then, bang, you're planted there. You really understand stratigraphy. You really understand, you know, the geology and, and the value of, of geology and all this. And they're saying, you know, go after what you think is important for this department. Or did you have this big kind of blueprint and you needed to, to follow that? How did that go in the beginning of the BEG and, and ultimately into what you're doing now with Switch On and, and this? Well, it's fascinating. You know, if you could plan things, you know, you probably never do them. <laughs> <You can't. laughs> My first night on the job, I flew through Austin from Denver and got in an airplane and flew to Mexico. And I went down to coastal Mexico and met with Alfredo Guzman, who is a, a, quite a big name. He was an exploration vice president of Pemex at the time. He's been known in AAPG circles. And they had a little contract they were working on with the Bureau when I inherited it in January of 2000. And it had a certain contractual value on it. And we're sitting at dinner and having a tequila like you do. And he said, well, here's the, here's what we can pay you. I said, that's not going to do it. And he goes, excuse me. I said, that's not even, that's not even half of what we can do this for. He said, well, we already have an agreement. I said, well, I wasn't here. Oh, <laughs> nice. And, and we have been fast friends ever since. And, and the value went up because I said, we can't do it for that. We'll do a crappy job. You know, I don't even know the people that well, but I know we can't do it for that. And, but we can do it for this and we'll do a good job. And that led to, us working in Mexico for five years or so, about half a decade on some really big basins in the, in the Mexican Gulf of Mexico. Got involved with GCAGS. That's when we brought Mexico into the GCAGS, completed the, the Gulf. <laughs> they have half of it. May as well be a member of the Gulf Coast Association of Geological Societies. So their AMGP, Mexico Geologic Society, joined and, and we worked that. But the Bureau was down to about 90 people at the time and had been through some rough years. The late 90s were hard on the Bureau. I've talked about that a bit. Mm -hmm. A lot of people wondering what, where it was headed. Um, Bill Fisher had been director till 94 and had left, but he'd come back in 99 to help find a new director. He and I had breakfast in a, in a hotel in Denver in the fall of 99. So 21 years ago now, literally, to probably to today wow. <laughs> and and I was 40 I'm 61 now and he we had a great breakfast and he came down and said I got this guy and, and like I said there wasn't anybody else qualified so they were pretty desperate and we came in and started meeting with people and looking at what they were doing and envisioning some things and 
kicked off some pretty th big things that have stayed. The, our Gulf Coast Carbon Center started in that very first year, and it's going strong now with CCUS. Two decades of leadership there. And started growing some industrial associates programs, uh, working some international things, et cetera. And, but it, a lot of it was organic, and all I had to do was hire some good talent and get the hell out of the way, keep doing email. I became really good at email, and I started learning PowerPoint. <laughs> And I'm, a, I'm really good at PowerPoint. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm good at it. So I sit on airplanes and I just do email and PowerPoint and pretend like I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> but we grew, you know, we grew in lots of ways and globally. We got 250 people at the Bureau now. Mm -hmm. We're running, instead of on a 10 million a year budget, on about a 30 million a year budget. We bring all that money in externally through grants with, governments around the world and contracts with industry and some foundational grants. But as a result, we're very entrepreneurial. We don't get money from UT, a little bit from our school. Talk about that in a minute, forming the Jackson School. It's a whole different story. But, uh, mm. but we have to bring it in. And so we're subject to economic cycles, just like you have been through. I've got people on a furlough right now, 20% furloughs. We've had about 20 people let go at the bureau, either through retirement or layoffs. So it's not easy times, you know, and that keeps you pretty hungry, keeps you working hard. But I like it. We run, we run like a research enterprise that way and have wonderful talent. And I'm not kidding when I say mostly, I just kind of try to stay out of the way and help make some phone calls when I can or, wow. or send out notes because I've had the luxury of being in 65 countries in the world and getting to know a lot of leaders in industry and governments and academia. And that's helpful. You know, that's been a big part of what I do. That had to have been a big motivation for switch on and for this idea that you can go around the world and, and, uh, and talk to people about energy and, and your understanding of the physical world as a geologist, really helping to, for them to, Re realize that and the credibility behind that was that kind of yeah. yeah you know Troy it, it's interesting I this happened about 12 years ago I was starting to do a few interviews and in, was on a few you know interviewed on a few films and things of uh, documentary stuff and one filmmaker was making a short documentary on the Barnett Shale and he had been hired by Chesapeake to produce something called Unconventional and he came out to the bureau, we sat in the core lab and he interviewed me. And at the end, he goes, you know, you're okay as an interview. You seem pretty comfortable. He goes, and I've read a lot of your stuff. Have you ever written a book? And I said, I'm too lazy. <laughs> he said, you want to make a movie <laughs> about global energy? I said, yeah, what would that take? He goes, well, you know, make one this good and then pretty, really good and then great would cost this much money. I said, well, let's do a great one. I can raise that. And this was 2008. And you remember what happened in 09? Wow, we yeah. saw the Great Recession. And so we were out filming away, and the recession happened, and I kept raising money. We were kind of hand to mouth. And this is night job. This isn't day job. This is, yeah. this, is, this is out filming. We went to 11 countries, filmed where the energy is best in the world. Because I've been talking about these things, but I didn't really know that much about solar and wind. And even nuclear, uh, waves and tides we did a little bit on, not much on geothermal, nuclear waste, et cetera. So we filmed 11 countries, lots of site visits, um, you know, expert interviews, 
lot of friends of mine, but new people. And that's how Switch happened. It was in production in 2010 and post-production in 11. And then we released it in 2012. And Energy was the star of that film. And what we didn't anticipate was that the global, it was popular, lots of festivals, and we won awards, best of fest and all this stuff. And, and we didn't expect the academic community to pick it up like it did. Hmm. This is the first nonpartisan objective film just looking at the pros and cons of energy. Mm-hmm. And so educators from around the world, 50 countries in their classrooms, and not just science, business and, and law and policy yeah. and even the humanities, they were, yeah. they were picking up on Switch and, and we, we passed 15 million viewers of that thing and it continues to be shown. Now we've updated parts and we're making a Switch 2020, but mm-hmm. uh, that was quite fun. And then Harry went away, and he's a filmmaker, started making a big, beautiful series on mental health. And I just kept babbling away about energy and, and, and then realized that we had kind of left off half of the world from Switch. We went where there was energy. Wow. We didn't go where there wasn't much energy. I said, Harry, we got to get the band back together, and we need to look at energy poverty, energy access, energy inequality. Wow. And we agreed that and formed awesome. the 501c3 Switch Energy Alliance. And that's when we started concepting a look at another five or six countries and switch on different from the first ones where there isn't much energy and how that's going to influence the world as we go forward. Wow. And if, if people haven't seen that film, uh, I hope you do. It's a little bit shorter, a very different feel from switch, which was exciting and technical and numbers and stuff and switch yeah. on is emotional and human and, yeah. and, and gritty. It's real. So I've, uh, you know, we went a lot on that. We released it, perfect timing, right at the beginning, COVID. <laughs> but it's starting to get a nice following as oh, yeah. people become aware of it. And I did, just last week, a week ago, did a big screening at MIT and Ernie Moniz and I, former Secretary of Energy under Obama, second term. We did a 90-minute Q&A, just like this, moderated by Rob Stoner, who's at MIT, on energy poverty. And I gave a talk today at lunch to Sipes, and I do one a day, some kind of a talk somewhere in the world about bringing energy and energy poverty all together and what that really means for the world. Because I think one of the more important things we tend to forget, there's only about 500 million of us, 520 million in the United States and Western Europe combined, 520. That's less than 7% of the world's population. The rest, 93%. They're busy. They're starting to emerge and industrialize and develop and grow, and they want energy, and they will have it. Okay, climate is not front of mind to anybody in Switch On, and even to a lot of the developing nations. They're they know and they care, but they care about getting energy, developing yeah. their economies, lifting themselves up in the world, and they need to do that. And so. Yeah. That's what our next film is going to be about is really what the real transition looks like as we kind of work through this trilogy, because everybody has to have a freaking trilogy. Oh, you yeah. Know, otherwise, you're not a filmmaker. If it's not a trilogy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, we are officially into the drill down segment of the PB podcast. With Dr. Yeah, yeah, that I was a seamless transition. That was that was perfect. Uh, right. I mean, you can't when when things are real, they come across as uh, as as planned or something. I don't know. Uh, but we are now in the drill down segment of the show. It is high energy. 
as we are talking about energy across the world with Dr. Tinker. And, and sir, you just kind of, you know, recaged what Switch did as far as, you know, your ability to go out and just assess energy logically, recording that, delivering that product to people to just and then allowing them to reflect with their perspective and their experience. And all of a sudden it was business majors and all this stuff just took off from you doing that. And then you sat back and said, you know, what about the energy impoverished part of the world? What about what's going on there? And now, I mean, this is beyond exciting. I, I want to know from your perspective and your experience and I, I want to convey and get this message across to everybody that I know, your perspective now on the world's need of energy, the world's want, the world's you know ability to get energy and do things with it. You know, where are we at? What's your perspective on this? How are we doing? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a big conversation, but I'm going to start with a couple of simple statements and then maybe we can drill down. There's a paradox. Um, energy won't end poverty, but you can't get out of poverty without energy. Okay. Period. So the world, the modern world, the world in which people are living longer, are healthier, are, are, are feeding their kids and, and, and much beyond that, where they're, they have access to modern medicines and modern technology, the modern world is built on energy, period, okay? Now that energy is dense energy. We went from not dense energy, coal and wood and hay, you know, back in the sun and wind, you know, we had wind mills for pumping water, for irrigation, for agriculture. We've had that technology in the past. We came into coal and it's like, oh my God, coal, here's, here's dense energy. Nature compressed all this hay and wood and biomass into coal. Now we can burn that. So that launched a whole nother sort of evolution and revolution of transportation, shipping and other things. And then boiling water, making steam and turning a turbine or running a generator or running an engine of some kind. Okay. But coal uh, has its challenges and we were using whale oil to put in our lanterns and, 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 and burn to see things. And, and then along came kerosene. Kerosene replaced whale oil. So we could have a different kind of fuel, a liquid hydrocarbon, again, that nature made. And then somebody realized, gee, I can burn kerosene. What's this other stuff? And I could, maybe I can refine oil into distillates of different kinds and gasolines and, and jet fuels and diesels and other things that can burn as well. And they're very efficient. So we came out of the solid earth stage to the liquids stage, and then we've been evolving into the gas stage, methane and other natural gases. Mm-hmm. So we've been decarbonizing from coal and liquid hydrocarbons to hydrogen fuels. Methane is CH4, the molecule, four hydrogens, one carbon. You know, So we've been evolving into the hydrogen economy very steadily for a century and a half. And that's kind of the path that energy has taken in the modern world. Unfortunately, there's still people that are living with coal and wood and dung, cooking inside in their homes, and that's all they have. And not just a few people, two billion people cooking like that 
today and getting lung cancer and cataracts and, and, and pneumonia and other things that happen when you breathe smoke in your home three times a day. And it's just wrong. It's morally wrong and it's technologically wrong and it's economically wrong. We can, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be that way anymore. There's energy for that. And so that's the big, that's the big transition is to lift the world, to unanchor, to detach the impoverished world and lift them into the world where we exist, but not through aid. They have to do this themselves in the, they have to begin to form their own micro markets and micro economies in ways that make sense culturally for the energies that they want as they start to begin to grow. And then they will maintain and it becomes a virtuous cycle. And this is quite different from, from aid based organizations that bring something in, put it in. It's nice until they leave and it breaks and it go back the way it was so very different concept around how to do that. And that's what switch on is trying to shine a light on is really, taking the world and making it healthy economically because as everyone knows if they've ever heard me babble here's energy there's the economy it, the energy underpins the economy and you can't have a healthy environment sitting up here if you don't have access you know if you don't have a healthy economy so you got to come through that economy the economy underpins the environment the cleanest water the cleanest soil the cleanest air that's it's right. where it's rich, where it's wealthy. You see it on anywhere you go. Look at maps of clean air and wealth, clean water and wealth, clean soil, wealth. Now, we've got to get that in our heads that it's not just the environment and renewable energy because you're skipping the economy part of that. and That doesn't work any more than you can just do economy, you know, and energy and skip the environment. They are all part and parcel to this waltz this three E waltz that I've been describing for decades now, they come together, energy, the economy, the environment, they work together. And, and, and we can solve that. I call the overlap there, the radical middle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's radical lonely sometimes, but the world is doing this and they're going to build on the energy that is the most affordable and available and reliable to them. Right. And that's coal. So you see China doing coal, a lot today, 120 gigawatts of new coal. It's hard to put that in perspective. That's that's more than anyone in the world times three. Yeah, uh, yeah. Vietnam building coal, et cetera. And you go, coal, come on. Well, you got to move through coal to get to that next thing, natural gas, nuclear, mm -hmm. hydro, some places, renewables. You know, what does it look like? So this so, is this is the big challenge is really how to how to how to get reliable, affordable energy into the economy so that they can then invest in environmental health. What's interesting to think about is exactly what the reality of what you're talking about. And that's the fact, and you've been there. See, one thing that's cool about creating videos and movies is it's built on this kind of uh, phenomenon that people like to watch and imagine themselves in the situation that they don't necessarily want to be in. There's a lot of people, I think, connecting with you as they watch you grab a child's hand in this show and you you are with these indigenous people and they're beautiful. And it's just incredible. Yet people like to watch that. Not a lot of people like to be there. So <laughs> it's just like watching a car accident. They can't keep their eyes off it when they pass. <laughs> 
It's just the reality of it. They, they kind of want to feel what that is. It's chaos. It's crazy. I kind of want to feel that, but I don't want to be there. So that's kind of that concept I'm talking about. And that's what you were able to do with Switch On. You were able to take me there. And, and so with that, uh, my thought is, how did you walk into uh, a, you know, a very different situation with, a, with generations after generations from the kids to the grandparents that have been doing what they've been doing for so long? They don't even have a concept of, of, of different way to do something. How did you figure out a way to say, hold on, you, your economy can be changed by this. Here's a, an energy source that is reliable for you, for the whole village to have uh, cleaner water and more energy to do things and, and, and power the lights. How, how, did that, how did that happen? How did the people respond to that psychologically? Mm -hmm. Well, we, we are just shining a light on it. So, yes, we brought first solar to Gunchukwa in northeast Colombia, the Arhuaco village in their Sierra Nevada. And they invited us a year earlier, went through the rituals, but they asked for it. Okay. Their young people were leaving Troy and they weren't coming back. And they knew they had to begin to do some of this in order to keep their culture alive. Wow. So they asked for that. And it wasn't something we were saying here, you should have this because there's a huge moral conflict about whether it's yeah. a better life or not, it's certainly going to be different. And, and you could argue it would be better if there was just half a billion people in the world today. Many people do argue that. And we were agrarian and, and living the way we used to. But I'll tell you what, when you have eight or nine kids in Gunchukwa and four of them die before they're adults of dysentery and a tooth infection, they don't think it's better, mm -hmm. you know that it's hard to watch your child die of something that we would take care of in one trip to the dentist. All right. And that's, that's really important to understand. So I'm going to, will you turn around on that map on the wall behind you? I think that's a tectonic map of the world, isn't it? That's right. You're going to now put your hand on Africa, just put cover Africa. That's a billion people. Now shift your hand over. Uh, you're going to have to talk so that I'm not the one on the video. I think uh, toward Asia, the other way. Oh, Asia. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Move, move it up just a little bit. Yeah, move, yeah, yeah. Not Australia. There we go. <laughs> right there. Uh-huh. That, that is 4 billion people in the world today. Holy smoke. Okay. Ooh. So Asia and Africa are 80% of the world's population today. Four out of every five live right there only. And that's the great challenge that we're not getting in the U.S. and Western Europe mm -hmm. is there's China is heavily invested in Africa now. Every country I've been in is a Chinese presence, infrastructure, lending, citizenship, wow. buying the world's resources. I mean, peacefully buying the world's resources. China now owns 60% of the world's lithium, 70% of the world's cobalt, and they're starting to buy up the nickel as well. Guess who's going to own the fuels for the electric vehicles we're so passionate about mandating? Yeah. China. And so we're going to switch from OPEC to China. And mm, that's interesting in terms of security. Oh, yeah. And then guess, is mining green? You know, I, I've never had a hand go up from a young person at a university. Mining green, nobody. And how about making batteries in a chemical plant and then putting them into landfill disposal? Yeah. You know, these are not green processes and, and batteries are not green things, especially when you're making them in the trillions. And I'm not exaggerating. 
to electrify half the world's vehicle fleet is going to take 3 trillion lithium ion batteries. Mm-hmm. We have about 20 to 30 billion today for all of our gadgets. 3 trillion, okay? And they got to do it again because they wear out. Right. It's not renewable. It's not sustainable. It's just different. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. the challenge I think we're getting. The electric vehicle, the car replaced a horse and buggy because it was a better technology. The cell phone replaced a landline because it's a better technology. Mm-hmm. An electric vehicle is just a different technology. It's not better than an internal <laughs> combustion engine. It's just different. You know, the, the motor is more efficient, but the fuel isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a combustion engine is less efu- efficient than an electric motor, but gasoline is a lot more efficient by weight or volume. It's called power density. And so it's just different. And you say, yes, but it doesn't have CO2 at the source. True. I was going to say, but... When you look yeah, at the right. process of shipping everything and mining everything, right? The amount of CO2 produced from an electric vehicle on the lot is exponentially more than, well, you know, it depends. So, uh, it depends, Matt, you know, um, if you're charging that battery with solar and wind, it's not, if mm. you're charging it with coal, like in China, it is, yeah. but forget the CO2 for a minute. Let's just talk about nature, the mining, and the manufacturing and chemical manufacturing plants of a lot of stuff because the sun and the wind are not dense. So it takes a lot of panels and turbines and battery and then burying it in landfills. Yeah. Near the surface, trillions of batteries and solar panels and turbine blades. Are landfills green? So it may be lower CO2 emissions and that's good for climate, but it's a lot more of an intense process for nature for the yeah. land and the water. And, and, and so we've got to be, begin to be very thoughtful as we address these, these choices going forward about energy and not just think that's clean, that's dirty. That's good, that's bad. That's stupid, <laughs> that's smart, you know? Yeah. Really? Uh, it's not that way. There's, there's nothing that in energy that works black and white like that, or otherwise we would be doing it. Uh, it all, ha- there, are, there are trade-offs with all of it, and there's oh, yeah. so much benefit. And that's why my biggest message is the benefits of energy are phenomenal. And in fact, the, four, the, the, the 6 billion people, 4 plus 1 plus a few that you just covered, Troy, <laughs> you know, the, there's a directly very strong correlation between fertility rates that's actually the number of children a woman has, a fertility rate, and education, okay? Very strongly tied. So the higher the education, the lower the fertility rates. Mm-hmm. If you want to start to think about population, education is one of the first drivers of lowering the population growth rates. And education requires energy. You have to have lights in a classroom and in your home. You've got to be able to move molecules around so you can communicate on systems like we're doing right now. And, and it all ties together in a really elegant and beautiful way if we're willing to think a little bit harder than something as simple as environment and wind turbines or yeah. Throw baby drill on the economy, forget the environment. You know, neither one of those are good models. I was going to say, but you, I mean, it is the Cliff Notes version, but the thing to look at is the complexity of this issue. 
right? There, there isn't, you know, a white light at the end of the tunnel saying this is the answer, right? You have to balance these things, these moral and these ethical dilemmas that pop up at every single turn along the way, uh -huh. right? Like you're saying, what will we bring in energy, then they can develop, you know, infrastructure, like a basic sewage system, right? Who knows, you know, that's probably polluting their, their aquifer, right? If they're just dumping, you know, all their waste into a hole outside of town, and then they pump water from, you know, Oh yeah. You, you, down. you can't believe, again, I say I've been in these, uh, you know, I've been in so many countries. I've been very fortunate to do that, but this direct tie, I don't know if, if, if I'm actually able to share my screen or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. let me, let me do that real quick. Can you see it? We're there. Okay. So here's, uh, energy and the environment or the economy and the environment, and I'm drawing these links. And what you see here, we're going to zoom in, is these young girls coming home from school in uniforms. And from me to them is a giant pile of garbage, polluted water, polluted soils, local air that's awful. This is Kibra, the big slum outside of Nairobi. And, and I see this over, that's a chicken, by the way, over and over and over again is, is this link. And that will never be cleaned up until there's enough uh, economic health being to clean up some of these systems. And this is not rare. This is every city in the world. 150 million people a year are moving to cities these days. 150 million, that's just under half the U.S. population, every year moving to cities. And they're not living in condos downtown. They're moving mostly to slums. And this is a huge infrastructure challenge that we have globally to provide for an ever um, denser population in these cities, okay, in these urban areas. Mm -hmm. Wow. So talk to me about, and we'll end the drill down segment on this kind of concept maybe. Talk to me about how you are thinking about, you know, what which energy specifically for this area that's going to help the economy as, as these things are got to go hand in hand. How are you guys deciding that? How are you influencing them to better understand that relationship and how, you know, it's going to be solar or maybe it's oil and gas, maybe whatever it is that is most efficient, that makes the most sense for them. How are you guys coming up with, with that? Yeah, our next film We've made several other films, some beautiful episodes, diving deeper into the story from Switch On. We have seven episodes we're about to release, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, a lot more interviews and things. So that's those are terrific, and you can get a better feel for Kunchukwa or Nepal or Vietnam, Kibra, the big dam in Ethiopia, et cetera. Our next film is called Making the Switch, and it's really going to be looking at that exact subject, uh, uh, Troy, is, is, is what does an economic – an environmental transition look like in a certain geopolitical and geographic region? What does it look like? Okay. And it's not just changing from oil and gas to renewables. That that's this sort of, you know, kindergarten transition that people yeah. are talking about, but that's not going to happen and it shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. We've instead, we have to look at the resources in a region, the governments available, the current political system, the economic systems and how, we can maximize on each of those to lift up the economy, allow for environmental investment, to provide the energy that's affordable and needed in the region. It might be a country, it might be a cluster of countries, it might be sub to that, 
and how you can begin to really uh, provide the infrastructure support needed to grow that economy. And I'll tell you a, a really beautiful story. We just had an international switch case competition in which uh, 260 teams signed up in two months from 37 countries on all six inhabited continents, teams of four students each, to do a case competition on poverty. We gave them three countries to choose from. They each picked a country. And then they had two and a half weeks to say, what would you do to take them from poverty out of poverty? And what they came up with was remarkable. The finals judging just happened on Saturday and we've announced the winners and you can go on Facebook live and watch all that. It's just phenomenal what they came up with. But in the middle of doing these, this study on energy poverty, we had teams dropping out like flies in Nigeria. Bullets were literally coming through the window of one of the teams from the police force. They said, we can't continue. We had some that couldn't get steady electricity long enough to put this together. Uh, New Orleans got Tulane University got hit by the hurricane and they had to have a several day delay there. So energy poverty was happening in real time as they're doing energy poverty studies. Mm. And that's the kind of thing that's going to happen with people of your generation and younger as you start to con converge on these complexities. But it's complex doesn't mean it's not solvable. And that's what I want to emphasize is mm -hmm. we tend to oversimplify sometimes and it's inaccurate. But you can simplify some of these things down to their really basic elements and then begin to develop reasonable approaches to them that won't be perfect, but they will advance the ball. So even though it's it's interactive. The social and legal political systems that function around energy, the environment, and the economy, those social, legal, political systems are very interactive, but it's solvable. You just have to distill it down to some of the essence, look at data, make compromises, get the markets engaged, because if markets don't do it, it won't happen. So the economy, work with the governments, you know, if the government doesn't want to do it, it won't happen. Yeah. And then the people. And, and those are the those, those are the pieces that really allow for this. So we're just trying to provide the information, shine a light on, make ourselves available. But I can't do this. I'm, you know, this has got to happen at all these different regions as long as we can elevate the conversation to one that that is um, nonpartisan mm. and thinks critically. Wow. That's an, it's incredible. I mean, the transparency needed, the motivation needed, the opportunity also in line. You're talking a lot of external, internal forces coming together. And, uh, and that, I, I, that's exciting for the, the footage that you're going to get in this journey you guys are going to go on with this new, the, the trilogy is, is filming that and, and, and putting that into, you know, reality of how this actually gets done. And, and that itself is going to inspire and so we are living it and that's exciting. Yeah. That's exciting. We are living. Like, and like you said, the, the documentary is not necessarily to find the answer, but it's to inspire hopefully and to get those thought provoking questions. Like you said, in all those classrooms in the world, like, Hey, this is a, the way we can approach this problem. Absolutely. I mean, I love you guys. And so I'd love spending an hour with you, but my motivation with you is to, for you to reach another 500 or 1,000 people. 
And then that's the only way all this happens. Mm -hmm. And, and you inspire people to go out, go to the switchon.org website and check out our films, our short, our primers, our, our one-on-ones, our interviews, all the site visits, all the episodes. And, and then I put my PowerPoints on there. There's a bunch of links to me giving talks live, you know, not edited but all over the world. And, and you can share the links and, and get people thinking and then go talk to a local school. Talk to a scout troop, talk to a civic group, go to your church group, whatever it is, begin to communicate what energy really looks like. Because if you don't, I promise you others are. I mean, Jeff Bezos' big fund just announced yesterday, I forget what it was, $760 million they just gave away yesterday to several, only 16 groups. $700 million to 16 groups to begin to take control of the energy story. And isn't that fascinating um, that, and what's that story going to be? Yeah. <laughs> is it going to be nonpartisan? Is it going to be objective? Are we going to mandate electric vehicles be sold in California and blame others for blackouts, brownouts, and forest fires when a lot of it's just policy that yeah. is built up on itself. And everybody's been saying for years, Hey, you're going to have brownouts and forest fires. Yeah. And it happened. Yep. And like, what do you know? <laughs> and guess what, Matt? You're living in it. You know? I am. And Texas has some policies that are equally weird. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. Kind of on the other end of the political spectrum. But you, your generation, my kids from 30 to 20, it's yours. This is yours to take and require critical thinking. Get in these civil conversations. Allow for a safe space to talk about things and not judge each other and not not slam each other for, you know, just social media slamming. Yes. I did it too. Yeah. But have these civil conversations and think about things and come back and talk. I, I rely on you and I ask you to do this, you know, to encourage conversations with all of your friends and then outside of your own comfort groups and, 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 and visit about things. You'll learn a lot as that goes on. And I'll bet you'll get this and you'll solve it. There you go. Well, I take that responsibility to heart and very seriously. And I appreciate you putting that on my shoulders as I'll happily exhaust myself. <laughs> Something like that. No problem. I, like I said, a bit of a people person. So you certainly strike me uh, as that. And and uh, and so we can move into the completion part of the show. Unless Skips, you had anything for the drill down, something to add? Or, or Mr. Tinker, if you wanted to add something? Oh, I'm good. I think we've probably exhausted people. Glazing <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> over at the at this moment. Uh, well, so the completion part of this show, the fact that we are in a time where we have the generation, you are speaking to us right now, Dr. Tinker, to say, take what this is and bring it to the next level. At the same time, you are paving the way. You are paving the future for us to actually understand what it is that is a tangible problem for us all to communicate, unite, and figure out. We got to get this done. With that being said, here's my, my observation and some, some guidance I think I would have for the situation that you are in. You are the reason why a lot of this makes sense. You are definitely the reason why our generation can understand what you're saying. You have this ability to articulate and to tell us this story and to bring us on and, and make us motivated. That's you. 
Now, we can't have 100,000 yous. You are the only one that exists. But what we can do is allow people that are motivated by you to be at all these hubs and all these places and all around the world. And now we can start switch on 2020 is, 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 uh, is turning on all these hubs that are an extension of you. You can't be in those situations understanding this problem and the complexity of each individual thing, but you sure as hell can manage that situation. And you can leverage us and leverage this technology to allow us to actually pull this off. We should have 2020 switch on should be happening at every country, in every country. We should be compiling the data, looking at the mistakes that have been made using California as a great example. I love that. <laughs> that is Before it checks out. I can't defend the state. <laughs> this is years of bad ideas this is years of bad policy and it's all coming out and it, it let's use that as an understanding as a data point let's compile let's synthesize and then allow you to be an extension of what you are and what you've been able to do to to get all of these stories to uh, elevate from all different parts of the world and we can all just just relish in that and, and and find the solutions and listen to those stories i mean that's that's what i see from all this well that's uh you said it <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's powerful. And, and to be clear on California, the intentions are good. But sure. I'm not judging intentions yeah. with Germany. Germany has a similar challenge as California. Yeah. Good intentions. But sometimes intentions end up in unintended results. And we have to be yeah. willing to adapt and evolve those. And not politically, it's very hard to do because you have to say, eh, that didn't work. Let's mm -hmm. try something else. And that's hard for politicians sometimes. And, well, and this is one thing I do like about the U.S. is one state can implement something like this while everyone else kind of sit backs and watches right and you know most people know it's probably not going to turn out too great but i mean it's 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 kind of nice that it's not a you know a national or a federal mandate right so yes. th that's that's the beauty of it but I, I do agree at the same time right when you make decisions based on the emotions of the individuals opposed to you know, the data, right. And opposed to a plan of action, like, like you said, what are we going to do with all these batteries in 10, 20 years? Right. Is there a proper way to recycle this? Is there blah, blah, blah. Like these are things right. that, you know, probably weren't discussed in great detail when this, when these policies were made. Probably not, or at least couldn't be implemented. And, and our 78 year old president elect, who's eight years older than the next oldest president ever elected. And that was Trump. <laughs> so, our 78-year-old president-elect has a 50-something vice president lawyer from California. Mm -hmm. And so you might say this won't be national policy, but Matt, it could be. Mm -hmm. And I never wish ill on anyone, but you know mm -hmm. he's outlived this statistically already, and the president's not an easy job. So I'm already reading hints of federal electric vehicle requirement policies. So how much do you engage in markets? And I think the important thing is, if electric vehicles were all that, great, but they're not all that. No vehicle is. We didn't talk about hydrogen fuel cells, which is the third kind of way to move around, internal combustion engines, batteries, yeah. fuel cells. That has a lot of cool parts about it. So, yeah. you know, we got to think about these options. The optionality is what's important. And in this conclusion section, I would just kind of leave us with that thought. Let's look at multiple options and make sure we aren't mandating from above things that markets are going to be pretty smart eventually and, ad and adopt as they go forward. 
So I, I think that I'm happy to continue, take the challenge and, and provide good information and try to motivate. But boy, those pods that you talked about, Troy, that'd be, that's fantastic. And we have some, those 260 student groups that came together from 37 countries, that happened from something called student energy. There's groups of student energy. It's called student energy if you Google it all over the world. And I've spoken to them a few times now. And man, are they engaged. And it's all sorts of different majors. It's not just STEM fields. It's everyone. Mm-hmm. So let's grow that. And, and, and love to have you guys get your podcasts out there and really begin to, to engage with that generation of people who will address and will take this challenge on. And I think we'll solve it. I, agree. I appreciate being on your show. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Uh, Dr. Tinker. Thank you uh, for, for taking the time. You've truly inspired us. And, and we believe that, yes, it starts with mm-hmm. allowing a small village of people, the, the leaders and the kids to come together with electronics. Let's, let's put them in a room. Let's have them discuss with cameras. It's not expensive anymore to do this. It's very easily, it, it's, it's not a lot of energy. So bang, you can have these little hubs that are having the, the discussions that are leading to this economic energy sustainability problem. But without that little bit of electricity that they can all huddle around and film and, and discuss all this and then have people like you that evaluate that discussion and provide help to make that connection and move it along faster that that's totally doable that is totally doable it is very doable and and you know in a day i got judges for the finals of the case competition that came from uh mit from an economist from the northeast uh, a member of the bp board and you know they they all are just like oh this is so great to be having things like this happening and And that's the kind of momentum that needs to go on so that we really get to a point where we don't look back and say, wow, I wish I would have known this. (laughs) Why didn't somebody talk to me about this? (laughs) That's where we're headed. And and by the way, I just want to say to you guys, Joe Rogan, watch out. We got got a podcast here. Let's go. All right. It is. It is. So if you ask what you do, if, if your listeners are in the energy business, be proud of it. Don't be shy. I'm in, in, in the energy business. I'm working to lift the world out of poverty. What do you do? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> we said that at the Midland Country Club a couple of years ago. That's exactly, it was on a plane. You were on a plane ride or something. And someone goes, oh, what yeah. do you do? <laughs> say it again. One more time. We're going to end the show. Please say that one more time. I'm in the energy business. I work to lift the world out of poverty. What do you do? Thank you so much. Amazing. Yeah. All right, guys. I got to bounce. Yep. Dr. Tinger, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work. Thank you. You too.